Hey, 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 Gavin. Hey, Louie. Girly girl, what have you been up to? Where have you been all my life? I cannot believe. I, I often think about how long we've been doing this show. <laughs> I thought you were going to say what we do when we're not doing the show, which for me is just <laughs> floating in a nebulous void. Yeah. Just <laughs> Well, I put, on, I put on my VR goggles and I'm like, <laughs> I watched every movie at two times the speed. Just like, <laughs> you just see me shaking and then like, Derek unplugs me, plops me down and is yeah. like, I'm ready for the next episode. Yeah, you're like, I know Barbara Streisand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a very good Keanu. I want oh, well, everyone you. out there, listeners, that was Gavin's Keanu. And it I was have... <laughs> fine. <laughs> I, I like that you had to explain it. I've only been practicing all week, Louie, <laughs> just for this moment. Well, well a the, moment like this. These jokes are clearly pre-written, so. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you need to send those back to the, the drawing board, babe. Okay? <laughs> because this roast, she is going up in flames. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mixed Reviews. We're a film podcast where we take a film subject such as an actor, director, or a mini genre, and we give you a complete history. Think about it. A 32-volume set encyclopedia about that Uh subject. And then we talk about what we like, and we talk about the things that we don't really like. Yeah, we get really into it. We get nasty. We get get down and dirty. There are highs. There are lows. Um, And either way, we come out... Feeling better about ourselves. Yeah, mostly about it's about each other. <laughs> building each other up, building ourselves up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like, hey, you have really bad taste, and that's okay. <laughs> that's literally what. That's literally what Louis tells me at the end of every episode. Hey, yeah, Gavin, yeah. it's fine. You have terrible taste. Get over it. <laughs> Is it pretty? No. <laughs> Do I want to wear it? Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, so our last episode, we had the very lovely, very charming, informed Liam Garreau on. We talked about Barbara Streisand. Such a good guest. Uh, Such a lovely, lovely person. Lovely, lovely guest. Love as Canadians are wont to do. Um, I listened to his uh, last episode of Deep Feelings, his podcast, um, and he talked about our show and coming on and how much um, he hated it. Understood. Yeah. Well, he forgot my name, so that was really fun and exciting and cute. Oh, no. Um, I'm kidding. He, he, at the beginning of his podcast, he talks to um, his friend AJ, and he was like, I can't remember if it's Louis or Luis. And I was, I'm here to tell you, um, Liam, it's either or, babe. Uh, whatever you want. Uh, and that is multiculturalism. Um, but so we talked about Barbara, and it was such a fun episode. Uh, I think. For me, I hadn't seen a lot of her stuff. Uh, I think, like, I had seen uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces in high school, and we saw The Way We Were for Robert Redford. Out of everything, The Mirror Has Two Faces, which is not, like, an insult to The Mirror Has Two Faces, but just, like, out of everything. I know. That, that's almost like you were like, yeah, I saw Up All Night when I was a right. teen. Well, so one of my best friends, Alexia, her mom had the VHS and or DVD. I don't know. <clears throat> um, but I remember sitting at, in her living room watching it like as a group. Um, and I think mostly they might have just loved it because of the song. Yeah. I mean, the song is just so, so good. And now Louie and um, I are going to duet it. Okay. Key of A. Yeah. Here. <laughs> this is it. I finally found someone. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, uh, hopefully you Come got- on, guys. Let's get it back in the charts. <laughs> hopefully you guys will uh, subscribe to our Patreon and mm-hmm. you'll get to hear the full version of Louie and Mai's duet. 
of yeah. Barbara Streisand yeah. and famous Canadian Brian Adams. I finally found yeah. someone. And- it's 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 worth it. It's worth your time, and it's a low low cost of seventy nine ninety nine an hour. <laughs> yeah, there there is a payment plan. Don't worry. Um, but we ask you guys to go online to our Twitter and to vote for your favorite Barbra Streisand film. Um, and here are the, the results. <clears throat> um, the way we were came in at nine percent. Uh, Yentl, which was both Liam and Gavin's pick, came in uh, in third uh, with seventeen percent. My pick, What's Up Doc, came in second with 35%. And the stunner, Miss Funny Girl, with 39%, takes the ball. Um, I, I'm not mad about it, you know? Yeah, that's the thing, is I, you know, initially I was like, well, I wish more people had seen Yentl. But I also just think that of those four choices, and of most of her films, barring a couple missteps here and there... There's not really a bad choice, and I'm glad people were excited. We got a ton of votes on that, so I'm glad people were yeah. excited to vote. And uh, but you know, give Yentl a chance if you haven't seen it. That's all. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a friend recently about Barbara and her movies, and he was like, "Oh, Yentl is just so boring. I can't get through it." And like, I understand it's a slower. It's not as a showy. Yeah. F- I mean, when, compared to Funny Girl, like, come on, like, I I get it. Um, but she does some really good work in Yentl, and. Uh, you know, it's also, I think me, I mean, both, I mean, all, if I was about to say that it means so much, but I feel like all of her movies mean so much to her. She like is so, she is very precious with the work, but also is so meticulous. And so it doesn't come off as like overwrought. Uh, so yeah, what a fun, fun episode. Thank you, Liam, for bringing Barbara to our, um, our, our fun little podcast. (laughs) <laughs> we'd like to have fun um we had a couple people write in the mirror has two faces uh so you know there's there, yeah i was there, i was surprised out of everything that could have been once again everything that could have been written in we got multiple the mirror has two faces so obviously that movie is still near and dear to the hearts of many which is good i mean it is good it's a good movie and it's it's an interesting take on the whole rom-com genre and it doesn't oh yeah you know it's i don't want to say it's deconstructionalist because it's not necessarily because it does hit a lot of those same beats but it's definitely playing on a higher more adult level and i think that's really interesting and i'm glad people really connect with that yeah yeah it's like a nice maze going deep into the heart of rom-coms um but babs gal your time is over we love you dearly um see you for funny grandma the, yes, the third in the trilogy. Yes. Got our fingers crossed. Uh, we need the uh, Fanny Bryce trilogy finally completed. Uh, so, Gavin, shall we're we're done. We're out of old business now. Let's let's tell the folksies what we're talking about today. We're talking about the one, the only comedian, actor, bigger and blacker, Chris mm-hmm. Rock. Yes, Chris Rock. Um. What do we like when you, when the name Chris Rock comes to mind? Like what what do you think of? What's your relationship to Chris Rock and his movies? Well, it's so funny because uh, my relationship with Chris Rock didn't necessarily start with the movies because when I was an early teen or preteen, I guess because I guess I didn't realize that he started on SNL in ninety one, but I think of him on SNL, and it's crazy to me that he was only on SNL for three years. Yeah, and. And but I I think of when I think of Chris Rock I think of a comedian who's very sharp very funny very observant about the world around him, uh, but also you know somebody who's willing to really embrace his goofiness and really 
you know, he knows he's not the most charismatic right. person in the room. He knows he's not, you know, the best looking guy, which is not to say anything bad about his looks, but he knows that, like, it's funny because there's not as much machismo to him, I think, as there are right. to a lot of other comedians who become sort of breakaway stars. And so when I yeah. think of Chris Rock, like I said, I, I think of, you know, really thought out, really intelligent discourse. Um, I do have other things that I'm going to bring up later, which I do think are interesting and deserve to be talked about. But I think in general, when when you brought up, when you mentioned Chris, I was like, oh, that's a really good idea because it did feel like in my brain there was a lot of variety to the things that he does and a lot of interesting things. I don't know if that necessarily panned out <laughs> in reality. Right. But we'll get right. to it. Yeah, I feel like for me, the immediately I just get like one of the funniest persons of all time. Yeah. Always a good time to watch. Like even if the movie is like not good, like he is just inherently one of those very funny performers, an entertainer. Um even when he's like not on, he is on. Yeah. You know, he's giving he's such a good like observational performer. Um but also, like, as I thought about his career, I've often – and, and as, like, I went down the list of his filmography, I was like, oh, it feels like someone who's, like, yearning. Someone who is, like, trying – to even through his art and through his movies, we'll see it's very, like, forward-facing somehow. Right. I was thinking, like, <clears throat> obviously, you can't, like – we can't get too far into this without saying, like, he is, you know – black like he he, i I, i'm not trying to like say like obviously he's black but like his work is very black and to me i was like he also feels like the black everyman um unlike you know uh bill cosby before him who was like kind of like the professorial type of comedian like kind of like a a father which you know now knowing what we know about bill cosby feels much grosser but at the time growing up bill cosby's position for people our age and by that i mean 17 right right and even though like you know eddie murphy who has a big influence on chris rock's career um i even thought about chris tucker um like his uh colleagues people like are in his lane i was like what makes chris rock stand out to me and i just kept thinking like you know who are the um who would be like the white equivalent of chris rock and i thought of um Who's the guy who does Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Jeff Foxworthy? Oh, no. Jeff. I'm going well, to let you like, finish it, your it, thought. I'm letting you finish your thought. Don't. Well, I thought of him just because, like, he, he's very, like, you know, observing his community and speaking on his community, you know, and he's he's connected in that way um, and has transcended being a comedian to be an actor in the same way that I think that Jeff Foxworthy has. Um, I don't know a lot about Jeff Foxworthy. That's, I'm going to say that. I think that's very clear. <laughs> But I think, you know, to me, it feels like Chris Rock is so intertwined with the community. Yeah. I, see, um, I see what you're saying. As, yeah. opposed, as opposed to like someone like Whoopi, who also has very similar careers. But to me, Whoopi doesn't seem like, you know, she's ever super um, or in her career choices has been like going to make the statement about being black in America or, you know, trying. I feel like Chris Rock's work oftentimes like pushes those boundaries i i think building off of that i think what also helps that too is he has had an incredibly controlling hand in his own career for much longer Mm -hmm. than most actors do and we talk about this sometimes you know there's 
there are actors who very early on realize like, oh, if I'm going to continue to work, I have to make my own work. But it really feels that way right from the jump because Chris Rock, as soon as he was off SNL, he, he immediately writes a film and stars in it. And, and like, that's a huge first step. And then after that, he's often producing his work and he's having a hand in writing it. And I think there definitely needs to be a praiseworthy quality to that because, you know, I, I like, I kept thinking back to Eddie Murphy once again, because Eddie Murphy has such a hand in Chris Rock's career, but also Eddie Murphy for as choosy as he is for as much as he never really has as much authorial stamp on his films as Mm. Chris Rock does. He can go in and he can improv. He can improv to high heaven and completely change a film, something like 48 hours. But that's not the same as being the person who put the pen to the paper in the beginning. And I think that's a really interesting facet for Chris Rock because it does mean that he, for better or for worse, is in one of the pilot seats of his career. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And I, you know, that I, I think any actor who's able to pull that off and do that, you know, from such a young age, uh, deserves the credit that they get for that. Totally. Um, with all that being said, why don't we jump into our rewind? Christopher Julius rock was born February 7th, 1965, making him 56 years old, or years young, actually, because that's pretty dang young. (laughs) He was born in Andrews, South Carolina. Uh, Shortly after his birth, his parents moved to Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Uh, A few years after that, they relocated um, and went to Bed-Stuy. You used to live in Bed-Stuy. Look at you. I I currently live in Bed-Stuy. That's right. I forgot you moved from Bed-Stuy to (laughs) Bed-Stuy. Yes, I was like in bed and I was like, I need to change things up. What about You're like, Bed-Stuy? Scenery, I just, I need it. His mother, Rosalie, was a teacher and a social worker for the mentally handicapped. His father, Julius Rock, was a truck driver and a newspaper delivery man. Um, Julius died in 1988 after an ulcer surgery. So I know that that came as like a big blow to Chris Rock. We're not mm-hmm. there yet, but I just, just keep that in mind that his father died when Chris was at a rather young age. Chris Rock has six brothers and one sister. Um, It's funny because I think a lot of people, because of the TV show, Everybody Hates Chris, assumes that he has one sibling of each. But really what he did was condense those characters. And I totally get it. That would be a little chaotic. So I grew up in a crowded house. And when my mother was pregnant, she used to like run a daycare center. And my house, my house was crowded. Rock said one of the biggest influences on his performing style is his paternal grandfather, Alan Rock, who was a preacher, and they had a very similar delivery to him um, in totally. terms of the way that he delivers comedy. Alan Rock was my grandfather. He was like probably the funniest guy I've ever known in my whole life. He was a reverend, Reverend Rock, uh, and, and funny. very funny, very, very, very funny. And I, it's weird because a lot of my my comedic style is probably from my grandfather. A preacher watching this guy preach and watching him. I used to watch him write his sermons. He never really wrote the sermon. He would just write the bullet points. And to this day, I don't really write jokes. I just write the bullet points and then I go. And my grandfather's a real complex guy. Like, okay, one side loves the Lord, other side killed a man. 
for stepping in his front yard one time, okay? So, <laughs> you know, like... What a heritage. Yes. Loved the Lord and flirted with every woman he saw. Like, like... <laughs> Rock was a product of the busing system to schools. Uh, yes. We talked a little bit about that in the Angela Bassett episode. He was bused to pre uh, predominantly white neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and uh, as he has said in many interviews, uh, this was a very poor neighborhood in Brooklyn. His parents thought that they were doing a really good thing by sending him to a white school, but they were sending him to an uh, impoverished white school. It's weird. It's like it's the defining um, moment of my life. Well, on one hand, it made me everything I am. On the other hand, it really screwed me up badly because I got uh, I was bused to school into a poor white neighborhood. Yeah. So, I mean, it was real race. I'm like, race, like, nigga go home with, with sticks and, and signs. In Brooklyn. <laughs> in Brooklyn, New York. This is the thing they don't, don't, they don't show you in movies. It's always like all the racism's down south. Like, like as soon as you get in Philly, it's like, hey, welcome, nigga, we love you. <laughs> and he experienced a lot of racism from these kids, bullying and often getting beaten up by white students. Um, as he got older, this bullying gets worse, and his parents actually pulled him out of James Madison High School. Um, and from there, he ends up dropping out of high school altogether, um, later earning his GED. And after high school, he just starts working really smaller things, such as fast food. I've heard him mention Burger King a lot. You know, he really... <laughs> he wasn't sure what he was... He worked at Red Lobster. Yes. I think he worked at Red Lobster. He's a busboy. Yes. Um but yeah, I mean, I can. I think he said like he wanted to grow up to be a uh, a truck driver, like his dad was. My game plan was to keep working at Red Lobster, get my truck driver's license. That was it. And kind of drive a truck like my dad, uh -huh. like you know. And honestly, Gail, if you would offered me in like 1989-90, right before I got on Siren Labs, if you would have offered me a job that paid $10, $12 an hour, I would have never told another joke in my life. Really? Yeah. Being poor or not, you know, being the only minority student in a school of white kids is asking for fucking trouble. Um, and obviously not by any fault of him, but just like, I can only imagine how tough must have been um, and then going back to Bed-Stuy where it's predominantly black and his friends there being like what the f like where the fuck have you been like you're hanging out with white like just getting it from all sides yeah. you know like this is something out of his control he's a fucking kid and so it's not surprising to me that he dropped out when he was um, a sophomore um, and then just like after that kind of like aimlessly you know trying to figure out what's next while he's you know flipping burgers and cleaning tables um from there, he starts doing comedy in 1984 in New York City's Catch a Rising Star. The way I got into stand-up, it was February 11th, 1985. Eddie Murphy tickets went on sale at Radio City Music Hall that day. I went to get tickets at 11 o'clock or some stupid hour, right? I'm sitting there at the end of the line. I have a New York Times um, arts and leisure section. And as I'm flipping through it, planning on staying on this line all day, there's a listing of comedy clubs in, in the Times, and it said comic strip, Catch Rising Star, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just like my grandfather had a calling to be a preacher, 
I had a calling at that moment, at that precise moment, to be a comedian. And they said, you have to pick a number. And if you get one through seven, you get to perform tonight. And the guy came out with the hat, lucky number seven. I got number seven, right? And while I was online, I kind of wrote down some bad jokes. And I went on at 11 o'clock, and I did pretty good. And a guy comes up to me, and I was re I'm leaving. I was like, okay, I tried that comedy thing. Let me get out of here. <laughs> let, me, let me get out of here before, you know, my mother calls the cops or something, right? And as I'm leaving, this guy, Mike Egan, comes up to me and says, you were great. I thought you, got, I thought you had potential. You've passed auditions. You can work the club. I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> What are you talking about? Yeah, you can come in. I want you to start coming in. I was like, really? Yeah, yeah. Every, I said, when are you open? He went, Every night. <laughs> and from that moment on, I probably went to a comedy club every night, probably for 10 years straight. Amazing. Um, impressive. Impossible. The, like, yeah. like, genuinely, yeah. like, this comedy in his bones in his bones he starts slowly rising the ranks of the uh comedy circuit um and he gets some like minor gigs and things he has a very small role and i'm gonna get you sucker and he's uh, has a small role in miami vice but really when things turn around is eddie murphy comes to the comedy club that he's performing at he wasn't even supposed to perform that night and eddie was like put him on next he performs after that, Eddie Murphy's like, I'm going to L.A. tomorrow. You want to come with me? Casual. No big deal. So he gets on Eddie's private jet, and they go off, mm -hmm. and he films a scene for Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yo, 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 what the fuck is up, man? Check this out. I get $10 for cars. I get $20 for limos. What the hell is this? My truck. Here's $50. Put it next to the limo. Eddie found me. Eddie saw me at the comic strip in New York, and it's been great ever since. And I mean, he flew me out here first class. I mean, ah. hooked me up with all the right people. I mean, I mean who, if I didn't know Eddie Murphy, I'd be in Brooklyn right now and ranking on somebody rather than doing a joke. It's like, Your mother's butt so big, when she bent over, they showed movies on it. You know? <laughs> Clearly, that's it. Like, that's the breaking point. Eddie Murphy is in his, you know, in his corner. He, you know, basically has the biggest seal of approval you can get in terms of comedy in the late 80s. And that leads to him being able to audition for SNL in 1990. So in 1990, being added to SNL is a huge deal. And he comes in with a huge new class of people. These comedians include... Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, David Spade, and they collectively become mm -hmm. known as the bad boys of SNL. Can you imagine? God, these fucking nerds, these <laughs> bad boys. David Spade, bad boy. Oh my God. And it, it's like, honestly, you give anyone a show in cocaine and they're all of a sudden a bad boy. <laughs> and it's funny too, because like, I don't know that like it's manufactured because essentially they stuck them all in the same office. So it's not right. even like... You know, like, had they stuck Chris Rock with, I don't know, Kevin Nealon? <laughs> Would it be right, Chris right. Rock and Kevin Nealon, the bad boys of bad SNL? Boy. <laughs> so. I mean, I, they're all, like, kind of juvenile. You know, like, the jokes were all kind of, like, potty humor, right. silly. Like, call it... I, 
I'm resistant or hesitant to call it like masculine because it doesn't, there's something that it's, it's more like um, base than masculine. It just feels like when I think of like college or, or locker room humor, this is what I go to. Like, <laughs> exactly. I don't think of like, you know, Donald Trump grabbing pussy but, shit. I think of like, this feels like locker room talk. But I also think there's a, a silliness to it that is, yes. is closer yes. as well to juvenile, you know, like that's one of the things that, I think I think it was even in one of the SNL specials that Adam Sandler said Lorne Michaels just never fully understood what he did. He thought he was just making like baby nonsense noises, but people loved it. So he kept yeah. putting him on. And, and wasn't sorry, wasn't Chris Rock also famously like never on <laughs> SNL? He he had he had a couple characters, but never you know, never it was never like uh, an amazing selection of um of reoccurring bits. I'm trying to think of right. one of them. I think um, I read that, like, he, I mean, he fully admits he was like, I was partying all the time. Right. So I would, like, not be prepared. I would just kind of, you know, wing it a lot of the times. I was so in over my head. Uh, because, like, when you think of that time, like, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, David Spade, they were on, like, they had lots of stuff. Yeah. L- like, lots to do. Whereas Chris Rock, it, I think more often than not, they would like literally put him on the weekend update, like just right. to come on and be funny. You know, there certainly wasn't a, a dearth of characters that right. they were writing for him or that he was writing to put out, which, you know, is partially the reason that he's only on it for three years. I do want to mention that in 1991, he does the movie New Jack City. Um, once again, you have to remember, he's really early on in his career. This is basically you know, just the the first little bit of SNL for him. And he Mm -hmm. gets this role, uh, this serious role in this movie where he plays a crack addict. Did you get a chance to see New Jack City? I did not. I, uh, looking at this now, I was like, oh my God. It was hard because there were so many uh, movies where I was like, oh, he's just such a small little moment. Like, I was shocked because I thought I thought he was just a small little moment in this movie and he actually has a, a much larger bit. But it is funny because... You know, this is uh, Mario Van Peebles' first movie, and it's very, like, machismo and very over-the-top, but also, like, it's good. Like, okay, it's worth, okay. it's totally worth checking. It's totally worth checking out. Like, it's, it's so funny, because some of the dialogue is wretched, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think the, the talent from Mario Van Peebles, which you don't always get from a first-time filmmaker... Um, as well as, you know, it's Ice-T in his first big leading role. Um, and Wesley Snipes' character, who is this drug dealer, Nino Brown, it is so over the top and so much fun. And just one of the, and I know we're talking about Chris Rock, but I just have to say, I really feel like as a society, we did Wesley Snipes wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we yeah. spent years telling ourselves that he's not a good actor. Right. For no reason. We did not have the receipts. Um, we we the, the community decided without any reason. Right. Absolutely. But uh. But yeah. He he wins a claim for that, and he continues doing uh SNL. But um, he starts planning to leave SNL in ninety two to ninety three, and before he can leave, because what what he really wants to do is Fox has in Living Color at the time. Right. In Living Color is a majorly black sketch comedy show. He wants to leave to go do that. He really wants to be part of this thing that's happening. Um. They find out that he's thinking about leaving, and they fire him. Whew. 
Um, so he eventually gets to starting in the fall. He gets to be on in Living Color. They keep labeling him a special guest star. He does six episodes, and then in Living Color is canceled. Rough. Oh my god. Yeah. How much? How much for me? Uh, dollar fifty. Dollar fifty. Good lord, that's a lot of money for uh, beer. Uh, 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 how much for light beer? One fifty. One fifty. Good lord, that don't sound too light to me. Uh, uh, why, why don't you wring out the dirty bar rag in my mouth? Yeah. <laughs> From there, he really gets it. You know. Well, if if people aren't going to be making the work for me, I'm going to have to make the work for myself. And so he decides to write a movie called CB4. It's made from very low budget of $6 million. He stars in this movie and it makes $18 million. You know, it's this incredibly low budget, occasional mockumentary about um, 90s gangster rap. But it's also very silly, mm-hmm. very... Um, it's at times like a, it's very much a spoof yeah. of that sort of thing. And um, did you did you happen to see CB4? I did. And it, it feels like very much a spoof, but also like a love letter to hardcore rap. You know, like it is the spinal tap of hardcore rap. Yeah. You know, he has something to say. It's not just like, oh, let's take the piss out of it. It's very much like, oh, God, like actually actively worrying like, do white people only see us as this now? Is the, I, I, right. I, I can see him like kind of weighing like what is, um, you know, kind of meeting white people halfway. Like I get why you're like concerned, but also like we're actual humans and not just like fucking. And I think it's really smart. You know, he has a lot of celebrity actual like Ice T and um, a bunch of other rappers of the time are there and and like doing interviews and stuff. So I think it's a really smart movie. Um, and also funny. I mean, he's so, so young. Um, and yeah, I liked it a lot. Well, this is this is one of the things, too, that I meant about, like, he knows he's not like the, the real hardcore ladies man and everything. And I think it's so funny that he wrote this movie and it really sort of cast himself as kind of a loser. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... Th- to me, nothing's funnier than the sex scene and yeah. how completely unsexy yeah. he is. And also, by the way... That sex scene is him and and the amazing Candy Alexander, who is one of my favorite actors, and I just fucking love her so much. And she never gets enough praise for all the stuff she does. She's essentially, I think nowadays would probably be considered a, a character actor. I don't think she's set out to become a character actor. Anyways, I digress. Uh, but that scene is so fucking funny to me, and part of it is because he's so bad at being mm-hmm, like... Mm-hmm. Sexy. sexy yeah meanwhile um, his co-star alan payne who is so hot yeah i was just very like, much that i was like oh my goodness oh my god <laughs> i mean honestly the entire movie he surrounded himself with just beautiful black actors young black people who are just so gorgeous um and you know kind of like fronting and and kind of being like oh i've got to put on this persona to be quote-unquote cool <laughs> um, and also, I, I even like the, the Candy Alexander character, and the he gives some space for the female characters and the f- women of rap to kind of express themselves and be part of the conversation. Which is shocking because I think as 
and it's not a ton of space, but it's it's space, mm-hmm. and I think you're gonna see it a lot less in his later films, and we'll get oh, we'll get to yeah. that. But I, oh, I yeah. genuinely, I was a little surprised working through his filmography and being like, huh, his best like female representation was maybe in his earliest work. Yeah. Um, I digress. Uh, as much to say that you know he continues on doing comedy specials. He does big ass jokes in 1994, um, and his second special, "Bring the Pain," in '96, ends up making him one of the most commercially successful comedians in the industry. He wins two Emmy awards for the special. All eyes are on him. Really, like that—that that is the the big boost to being like, oh, he, this man can do things without SNL. He right. doesn't need SNL, and. Uh, while he's doing that, he's also doing these like smaller bit parts in movies. He does Beverly Hills Ninja. He does Sergeant Bilko. He does uh, a voice in Doctor Doolittle, um, and really his like big, like out of the box break comes uh, with Lethal Weapon Four. We talked uh, that's in 1998. We talked about Lethal Weapon Four in our buddy cop films. It's weird. He talks about the the way that he got the part, which I think is a little gross, um, which is essentially uh, the studio mocked up a bunch of fake action movie posters with different black people on him, and he tested the best. Oh, my God. He was told this. Joel Silver brought me down to see Mel Gibson, and Mel just looked at me and said, you're kind of funny. You're in. And that was it. So... I know that some people hate Mel, but Mel gave me my first big check. I feel like he has such a fucked up relationship with Hollywood and like fame. Yeah. And I fucking bet like he's been in this industry for so long. He just has a mountain of stories of like awful fucking treatment. And like at that time, like 96, 97, he is very famous cover of magazines. Like and, and to be that famous as a black guy doing comedy like that is fucking like you know super impressive he is a star in his own right and to have fucking mel gibson doing his fourth fucking shitty lethal weapon movie like (laughs) to treat him like that is so fucking nasty and disrespectful oh i fucking hate which is so which is so you know it's also bonkers because at the time you know he's doing this movie but also hbo loves him so much he does so well for hbo they give him his own show, the mm-hmm. Chris Rock Show, which starts February seventh, nineteen ninety seven, and runs from November to November twenty fifth, two thousand. Is a talk show variety show, uh, and it's genuinely. I remember this. I remember it being very funny. You know, it's a lot where a lot of ideas of his come from. The the character Pootie Tang comes from yes. the Chris Rock Show, and. Um, had a lot of amazing guests. You're like an idol to me. I mean, you are, first of all, forget the OJ thing. You got Todd Bridges shot at somebody eight times, you got them all. <laughs> Michael Jackson had a kid sleeping in his house. You talk to somebody, he's a free man. <laughs> I mean, but you don't get, you don't, you know, after this trial, people got so mad at you and they didn't give you the respect you would do. I mean, you know, Marsha Clark got a bigger book deal than you. you, you you're kind of like Joe Frazier after he beat Ali. Trying to, it's, like, it's like he won, but no, I guess he did. I was reading this interview that he did with the New York Times and he talks about like in his career where he had, t- he's been, shouting from the rooftops the names of all these like amazing black comedians and actors for such a long time he talks about how he took wendy williams to hbo like years and years and years ago and they were like no we don't want like to do a show with her and he's like 
I, I don't know. Like, I, I've been knocking on all these doors, you know, like Leslie Jones years and years and years before SNL. Um, and it's and this is some, from a guy who was there, who was given the access, you know, um, and and still these fucking hurdles. And, and, and especially for, for people with that level of talent, like when you think of Wendy Williams, who is so fucking entertaining, Leslie Jones, who like literally NBC will fucking give her anything she wants. I think as we keep going through his career, especially, I mean, during this time, especially, it feels like, you know, uh, when you read about his history and his, you know, he's been yearning for more than comedy. I can imagine looking at the stuff that he's been doing here, especially like the smaller parts that he's taking. It's like no one would give him a break, much less these other people that he was saying were amazing, you know? And really it's the... You know, it's the depth and saturation of the things he's doing because he's everywhere. In 97, he said his dream when he was a kid would be to be able to be given the opportunity to host the MTV Music Video Awards. Amazing. It was because he saw Eddie Murphy do it. Mm. And it's so funny because he, you know, he eventually goes on to host the Oscars twice. Yeah. And he still says that hosting the music video awards was like the goal was was what he wanted (laughs) and so he gets his first shot in 97 and he does it and he does great they invite him back a couple more times so but we're not necessarily here to talk about that we should really be talking about his films he has all his hands in many many pies kevin smith cast him in dogma yep uh, he plays a character Rufus, who's the thirteenth apostle, who was left out of the Bible because he's black, which I also think is funny because, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. To my knowledge, all those people, all the, the all apostles of those are people, black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, um, but it's a good joke. Uh, it's a good joke. Um, I, for the first time, saw two thousands Nurse Betty. Um, yeah, and back when Neil Butte was making movies that I liked, <laughs> I think this movie is fucking weird. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I don't. I don't. Oh no, I don't think it's amazing, but I like it much better than Neil Abutes later. Like it's no, it's no Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. I, I, there's a lot going on here that I'm just like, this is weird. We're reaching your honor. I don't. <laughs> Maybe we should explain the plot, which is essentially Renee Zellweger is a waitress who's obsessed with a soap opera and she witnesses two hitmen played by Morgan Freeman and Chris Rock murder her husband who is um, Aaron Eckhart and she goes into a fugue state where she genuinely believes she's a character from a soap opera Um, she chases down Greg Kinnear who is on the soap opera and he eventually berates her till the fugue state dissipates all the while she's still being tracked by these two killers who realize that she has been a witness to this murder um yeah, yeah I, so it's a very simple easy to understand linear <laughs> story that is just full of laughs um that's the thing is it definitely thinks it's funnier than it is it abs- <laughs> i was like uh i i That movie used to be played on Comedy Central so much when I was a kid. And rewatching it for this, I was like, this? Comedy Central this? No, no. This is supposed to be my last job. I mean, I even put down a deposit on my boat. How the hell can you eat at a time like this? I get nauseous just watching you. Well, I can eat. Because I know we didn't kidnap no woman. I can eat because I know ain't nobody looking for us. And I can eat because I'm fucking hungry. 
relax. She'll end up on a milk carton or something. That's about it. I just think like there's also like different movies here. I think Chris Rock yeah. is playing like, you know, like he's in fucking training day or something. And Ed Renee Zellweger is doing the like kind of campiness of it all. Um, Morgan Freeman is in some fucking spiritual thing. I don't, it's just, <laughs> it's too weird for me. It's just too much. It's just too much. Not, not for me. <laughs> I think he mostly did that film because he wanted to work with Neil Labute. Neil Labute was a celebrated uh, stage playwright at mm-hmm. the time. And, you know, really, I think that drew him in because and we haven't really talked about this. Chris Rock is surprisingly somebody who has wanted to be a serious actor for a very long time. He's wanted to do much more than comedy, but he says no one will cast him. You know, nobody is giving him the opportunity this is much further in his career, but in 2011, he goes to Broadway and does Stephen Aldi Gerges's play, The Motherfucker with the Hat, with Bobby Cannavale and Annabelle Sciorra. And Chris Rock was nominated for a Drama League Award in this. And Vibe Magazine was like, why did you want to do this play? And he said he wanted more people to see him really act. And when you do comedy, it can be formulaic and it's hard to get good directors to see you act. And I think that's what, you know, I think Nurse Betty is an early uh, indicator that he is longing for something more than the silliness. But he also knows the silliness pays his bills, Uh, which brings us to his next film, 2001's uh, Down to Earth, which Mm -hmm. is a a remake of Heaven Can Wait. Uh, Chris Rock wrote it and executive produced this movie. um, And he said what drew him to it was... He had heard that Warren Beatty wrote uh, Heaven Can Wait for Muhammad Ali, that the sport in the original was not football, it was boxing, and he thought that that would be a much more interesting idea to have a black man in a white man's body. And so Chris Rock took that idea and ran with it. Uh, I saw Down to Earth. Oh, yeah. I did not like it. Uh (laughs) um, I remember seeing this in theaters, like in middle school or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's not It's not terrible. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. But, and this is going to start happening more and more as the further we get in. A lot of these movies, I don't, like, they're not for me, and I get that, but I also don't know who they're for. Like, the jokes in Down to Earth were mostly lame. Like, not... You know, and I don't I don't want to fully blame him. He didn't direct this one and he is going to start directing his stuff. It was Chris White's and Paul White's who did like the American Pie films and whatnot, but then like moved on to much more schmaltzy material. And I feel like this is sort of the in between of that where it's like, I think he like the quite about the about a boys of their career. But right. I feel like he's always especially down to earth and of this era is like he's trying to. He's, he's trying to connect with his black audience, like that's his bread and butter, and so he's going to tell jokes about being black, um, but he also wants to make the white people, if not laugh, but make them uncomfortable, like, you know, kind of like say what other people won't say, be honest, like, you know, doing the hot takes, um, but as to what he has said, it gets formulaic, like, you know, it's kind of like, it's sometimes I feel like some of these movies, he builds them around like a bit <laughs> that he wants to do. Like, you know, he's like, oh, I have a really great bit. 
um, and let's figure out where can I slot those into my movies. And so, you know, unfortunately, like a good bit a movie does not make. And 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 I will say, especially here, it's definitely problematic and made worse for wear because he like falls in love with Regina King in the body of like a 75 year old white dude. And, and, and it is forcing, like, it's not even like, ha ha ha, this is funny. It's like forcing us to kind of believe that this woman who is like a grassroots nonprofit person is going to like fall in love and disregard her like truth and who she is. Um, and fall in love with this like old rich guy who's been an asshole his entire life. Um, and on top of that, the the personality that Chris Rock presents in the movie isn't like a fun, pleasant, like isn't no. like a like lovable. Like he no. is, he's the type of guy who like just starts singing DMX in the middle of it. You know, and he's like a. And it's a very strange because it wasn't. It wasn't like <laughs> Chris Rock came into this body and replaced this guy with a better personality. No. He just gave him a different one. I, I let's put a pin in um, Chris Rock using uh, people singing a black music in front of crowds as a joke because okay. oh my god that comes up again and again and again. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Hey, have you lost your mind? I, I forgot who I was. You forgot who you were. I just like the song DMX. Rough Riders, get well, what if I go. was singing, Whitey's wanna die? Whitey's can't try. Might get a record deal. 2001 also brings three other roles for Chris Rock. He uh, produces Pootie Tang, uh, unfortunately directed by Louis C.K. Um, I could not good... I could not believe Gavin. Yeah. I I a friend of his. I it unreal. When I saw like the beginning credits, I saw like everything happening. I was like, okay, I'm finally watching Pootie Tang, which I've known to be, like, this kind of big joke. Like, even, I think, to Chris Rock now, he's like, I guess people didn't like Pootie Tang. But then to see that it was directed by Louis C.K., my God. Yeah. Like, the the the, the bro's gonna bro, I guess. Pootie Tang was really hilarious when I was in college. I rewatched it for this. I still think there's some good jokes in it. I gotta admit, I can't, I can't deny... There's certainly things that made me laugh, uh, but oh, and and poor Jennifer Co- Jennifer Coolidge is in this. She's I know. in Down to Earth, mm-hmm. and like I love her to death, but that that poor girl though she gets some of the funniest fucking scenes in Pootie Tang, if you ask me honestly. Also in 2001, he does the voice of the character Osmosis Jones, which is a mixed media live action hand drawn animated film. Um, I forgot it was uh, mixed. I thought it was only cartoon, and then no. I was like, I was like, there is so much Bill Murray in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, you know what's you know what's fun. Uh, totally cool guys, the Fairley brothers. Um, when they signed the contract for that movie, um, it was written into their contract that they would be listed as the only directors of the film, even though they did not oversee the animation process at all. That is such fucking bullshit. The movie. So they so they basically made like a gross short film with Bill Murray and then yeah, Bill Murray picking his nose and like farting or whatever. Yeah, sneezing That's... on people and. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of Osmosis Jones better than the actual execution of Osmosis Jones. Um, it's, I also think what's really funny and kind of sad was, you know, Warner Brothers feature animation really 
put all of their money in on Osmosis Jones. They had a choice between two projects. Um, it was funding whatever Brad Bird wanted to do, who had just done the Iron Giant, or funding this. They chose this. Brad Bird got mad and took his products with him to Disney, and that movie ended up being The Incredibles. Jesus. And this movie... Osmosis Jones was a huge failure. Um, he also has a, a rather large cameo in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where he plays Shaka Luther King, um, who is the incredibly angry director of Blunt Man and Chronic. Um, it's a funny <laughs> extended cameo. It makes me laugh. Um, in 2002, he does Bad Company for Joel Schumacher. It's a action buddy cop comedy with Chris Rock and Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah. As I was watching it, I was like, wow, he really made Pirates of the Caribbean, but, like, make it a heist or make it, like, a spy thriller. <laughs> Chris Rock has to play twins in that movie. He has said repeatedly he was not a good enough actor to play this ah! character. He said he said that, the you know, he was basically, like, like talked into it constantly. I remember I turned on that movie, like, four times or something, and Jerry kept talking to me man and he nego- he he talked to me like a guy trying to convince his wife of a menage you know what i mean like <laughs> he was so smooth a level of smooth you would not believe and you know, I was like, hey, the script needs work. And then he's like, oh, yeah, Top Gun needed work. And he'd have Tom Cruise. Hey, Tom, tell him how Top Gun needed work. <laughs> I play my own twin. Like, I'm not that good an actor. <laughs> play a fucking twin. I'm sorry, did I just curse? Kerry Washington, who we'll see again as a love interest, uh, yeah. is in this movie. Uh, they, they, they With seem the to worst cross hair. She's, yeah. Yeah. With the worst hair that she's ever had in any movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's up with that. It got me to thinking about, like, Carrie Washington and, like, how she had to play some pretty bad roles to, like, break through to where she is now. If you want to compare, he had to play some pretty bad roles after he'd already broken through. <laughs> so. That's very true. Very true. In 2003, he directs, produces, and writes Head of State, uh, which is a comedy about a black man becoming president. What a foreign idea. <laughs> Ahead of its, its time. It's funny. I, Iconic. I was kind of arrogant when I directed Head of State. I... I had done bad company, and it turned out to not work, and I was just pissed off at the world, and I was like, you know what, your guys aren't going to mess me up, I'm going to direct this and do everything myself. If I was in a better place, it would have been a better movie. I was in a real, kind of arrogant place at the time. I liked Head of State, actually. Like, it's, like, not amazing, but, like, as I was going through it, as the movie was, like, moving through me, I was realizing he is doing absolute kooky-booky bonkers nonsense from the jump. From the jump when it's like, the first joke of the movie is like the cast list and it's like Hillary Clinton, yeah, uh, Rudy Giuliani. And I was like, what is going on? And then like it finally finishes. He's like, are not in this movie. And he has this like weird Greek chorus of like a rapper telling us the tale of Maze Gillum. Um, and I... I there's so much personality here. Like he said, I'm going to make this movie the way I want to. I'm not going to make like a quote unquote Hollywood movie. Like I just never seen anything quite like this, you know? Um, and it also like for someone as being as radical, the, the idea as radical as, as it is, you know, this black president in 2003, um, the, 
the actual politics of it are so human. <laughs> like, it's, there's nothing radical here. Yeah. Like, he's literally just like, don't you want high-earning uh, um, jobs? Don't you want, like, daycare for your kids, better schools? And everyone's like, oh, my God, yes, maybe we should have a black president. Crazy. I think from the beginning, they try and, like, say, like, this is Gonzo Theater, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. you know. Uh, I, ju- I just wish it was more consistent in a way than... 2005, he gets his role in Madagascar, mm-hmm. where he plays Marty. We talked about Madagascar in the DreamWorks animation mm-hmm. uh, episode. I have now seen all the Madagascar movies because of the DreamWorks animation episode. He's really fucking funny in these movies. Yeah. Such a talented voiceover artist, and I think it's partially because he's able to infuse so much character into the the way that he presents his voice. Yeah. Um, even more so than maybe sometimes his face. Yeah, I do feel oh, like yeah. sometimes I'm what I'm watching him in a movie, and I'm like, "Is that what sad looks like to you?" Like, he, but but you can hear it. Yeah, he totally like he either has like kind of it's almost like the elastic of his face only goes one way. You know, it, he yeah. he can do big, but or like completely just like blank, kind of like fucking shopping <laughs> board. Um, there's no like kind of depth. That goes in the opposite direction. Um, so yeah, he's perfect for Madagascar, um, and it's a huge success. Millions of spinoffs, sequels, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I, I hate it when I, when actors say how hard it was, how much work went into my character. <laughs> uh, when you do animated stuff, no. Here's what happens: you go in a booth, and somebody go, okay, what do I say? They go, time to go to the store, and then I go, time to go to the store. <laughs> 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 you want to say it again? Okay. Time to go to the store. <laughs> well, what else do you want me to say? Uh, say it's cold outside. It's cold outside. <laughs> and then they give me a million dollars. I do wonder sometimes, too, if that the fault of his inability to express fully uh, you know, a full range of emotions comes from in 2020, he was diagnosed with a nonverbal learning disorder, um, which is something that should be diagnosed very young. Um, it's often confused with Asperger's. It is not Asperger's, but it is adjacent to it. And essentially, he now does um, seven hours of therapy a week um, in order to to work through it, because essentially what it does is he can understand words um, and does not he has like a really hard time picking up on non-verbal cues um so you know he says like it's great for writing jokes but it's not great for a one-on-one relationship um he also says like you know i'd always chalked it up to being famous anytime someone would respond to me in a negative way i think whatever they're responding to something that has to do with who they think i am and now i realize it was me a lot of it was me um Hmm. And so I I wonder I just found out about this today. I was like, really, the last day of research. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do think that's really interesting, and I, th- I think it's also really difficult to be um, diagnosed with a learning disability uh, as an adult, yeah. as opposed to when you're a kid. Um, they they do say it also leads to um, usually children with uh, NLD or NVLD do really well in school while they're young and then towards high school usually end up doing really bad. And I do think there's also a partial correlation to why he dropped out yeah. when he did. Um, 
But anyways, I digress. Madagascar, huge hit. Um, 2005, he also does Longest Yard with Adam Sandler. He plays a character named Caretaker. Um, he's he's basically a sidekick, yeah. and he's in he's two-thirds of the movie. It's the manliest manly man-man movie that ever manned before. Yeah, exactly. I remember thinking, like, uh, but, is there a woman in this movie? And it's only Cloris Leachman and uh, Adam... Courtney Cox at the beginning? Courtney Cox for, like, five minutes... Five minutes, um, yeah. And then the rest is just like, you know, I don't want to say vaguely homophobic, pretty homophobic, but like not like, maybe homophobic's not even right. Like, I don't know. Like, no, it's like, ho- no, homophobic. It's right. homophobic, but also like they're trying to be respectful about it, if that makes sense. No, no, they're not. And that's now's the time we're going to get into it. Okay? Well, like, um, he's like, uh, we're being homophobic, but we're being nice to them. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I, I guess that I, you know what? I guess you're right on that one. But Listen, most people are not going to watch, like, 20 Chris Rock films over the course of two weeks. Right. And so most people are not going to have the perspective that we have in doing this. And I do think sometimes we maybe set ourselves up for this sort of situation. But all these films, almost every one of these films, has an extended homophobic joke. Mm -hmm. And... I don't want to accuse Chris Rock of being homophobic, but I think this is slightly different because we do other people like we could have talked when we did our Barbara Streisand episode about how often her early films, you know, bust out you know, some homophobic slurs or but the difference is her earlier films. She wasn't writing. Mm-hmm. She wasn't producing. She wasn't directing. Chris Rock is doing these things. And admittedly, like Longest Yard, you know, maybe take Longest Yard off the table. Fine. He didn't write, direct or produce it. But some of the other things he's doing, and and these jokes that are so prevalent in a lot of these films, feel mean. They don't feel welcoming or inviting. And I think it's difficult, you know, it's sort of like we talked about in the Robert Rodriguez episode, where if you look at Pulp, and you think of, like, all the things that Pulp usually is, which is usually, like, really sexist, and, and you know, really misogynist, but it's presented in a way that's like, but isn't this cool? Yeah. You walk out thinking, like, that's cool. And I think if you're a kid and you grow up thinking, like, wow, I love Chris Rock. He's great. I've seen all of his movies. You're going to end up internalizing a lot of that stuff. And that's not great. Yeah. And and once again, I know we watch these in a really condensed period of time. And a lot of this stuff I didn't remember. A lot of these films I'd seen. And I, I don't remember these jokes but this time specifically, and and I don't think I'm being overly sensitive. I don't know. They they were mean, and it's it's not just the homophobia too. It is the misogyny. I I think I think there's a lot of roles for women in these movies that are not roles. Yeah, they're not people. And and so I was really, I did not have a great time <laughs> doing this episode. I feel bad saying that, and I'm sure some people will say like he's wrong. Whatever you can bring your own opinion to it, but. I was really shocked and surprised because I think Chris Rock is so fucking smart and so fucking funny. And I was disappointed. I think I I will say, I think, you know, I, I don't know that I got that same sense. I'm not disagreeing with you because there definitely was a lot of homophobia in his movies. And I certainly remember clocking like, has there been a woman on screen in, like, this movie? Um, I thought a lot about this, though, during The Longest Yard, just because I was like, this is the movie that was concocted for the, like, 2002 
like hormonal dude that like you know like it felt like every joke and every situation is centered around like being a man and like that experience like and i i thought like i bet you everyone watching this movie thinks that they're the adam sandler but in reality (laughs) they are the like bad guy like the the everyone thinks that they i mean it's the classic white man thing everyone thinks they're the prisoner but actually you're the fucking guards guys okay right right um and it's in this movie um and please like let me know what, what you think about this because i the joke is that they have cheerleaders and who should the cheerleaders be but obviously the gay inmates um perhaps trans inmates i don't know um they are you know led by tracy morgan um who is in drag essentially um and there is like maybe one character on the football team who like is like no what i don't sleep with tracy morgan um but they do this thing where they do cheers and the Adam Sandler's like, okay, girls, yay, good. Like, they never say, like, oh, those fucking faggots, blah, 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 blah. But the joke is that look at these men who are performing in and, and even even the joke of that guy being caught hooking up with one of these men. Um, that is the the joke. That is the like, and so Adam Sandler and um uh Chris Rock are very like I think they tread lightly to make sure that those characters aren't assholes to these people because that's the whole point. They're supposed to be like the nice guys. Right. But even in presenting in that like context, it's kind of fucked up. But and counterpoint to that, the when they do expose the one uh, person on the team who is yeah, they sleeping with they Tracy. Him. Yeah, it's it's yeah, they're they're watching a movie and it cuts to him and you know, and it's and it's like outrageous too. It's right. like Tracy Morgan's putting lipstick on him and whatnot, and the entire audience is laughing at them. And that is that's yeah, like homophobia. literally telling yeah. like like yeah, it's like the butt of the t- being gay is a joke. I true I truly don't believe in his heart of hearts no. that this is a homophobic no. man. And I don't want people to come away from this thinking that that's what I'm saying. I don't. And I think I think films from it's so funny because we do so many films from the 60s and 70s that have complicated politics, but the funny thing is is I think the it gets even worse somehow yes. in the nineties and the yes. early two thousands because people don't know what the boundary is yeah. at all yeah. anymore. And so they just really push it to the, to the worst thing that they can. Think I think of. also though, like there's a lot of like low hanging fruit here, you know, like he, yeah. sometimes it feels like lazy jokes. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's funny, you know, like I've, there's episodes of strangers with candy where they fully say the F word. And you know what? I fucking, yeah. I fucking laugh. Like, yeah, it's I, I think the uh, you know, Kathy Griffin has always said, like, if it's funny, it's funny. Like, if it's offensive, it like it doesn't matter if it's funny, it's funny. And right. I think some t- it's not funny in these moments because he's punching down and it's low hanging fruit. It's like, oh, OK, yeah, you're making a joke about like, I mean, especially for a movie that is like so full of like a bunch of like crazy nonsense, um, literally a prison running a football league for their guards lol some i think it's like less like of him being homophobic i think it's just like what and again this movie i think was made for fucking like white men (laughs) 
<laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't mean for us to spend so long in the longest yard because he's his character doesn't spend so long in the longest yard. But uh, I do want to move on to 2007's "I Think I Love My Wife," which is the second movie uh, Chris Rock directed. Uh, he produced and wrote to it's a remake of the French film Chloe in the Afternoon from 1972 directed by and I'm gonna fuck this up some francophone out there is gonna call me out on this <laughs> but I believe it's Eric Romer I, I'm aware I've heard of Eric Romer before but I don't think that's how you pronounce his name because I'm terrible at pronouncing French t- stuff anyways second um, movie with yeah, Kerry Washington second um, uh, truly a film with two of the most beautiful yes. people on this planet, Carrie Washington and Gina Torres. Mm-hmm. Like literally, mm-hmm. like why was Chris Rock even in this movie? I just want I want a love story between them. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that would be a gag. Um especially yeah. like cause this movie is just like insistent that like people just drop by your office to like I, I kept thinking through this movie, like, just don't. Just don't <laughs> That's literally, that's literally what I kept thinking too. And it's not it, just and don't. it's not even like don't you and your wife don't you know have questions about your relationship, but like if a stranger from your high school days comes up to your office every day and is insisting on you like going to lunch, right. helping you move, I'd be like, that's fucking insane. I don't even know you anymore. Goodbye. Let me go. F- like get on the apps and cheat like a normal person. Yeah. The two thousands, he really keeps working. He does a sequel to Madagascar. He produces a documentary, which he stars in called good hair. Uh, It's It's great. It's so fucking good. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend watching it. Um, Also like very, um, it's so funny too, because early two thousands documentary, well, I guess it's 2009, but you know, part of the naughties documentaries could either, the popular ones could either sort of go one of two ways, which was like, you either make a Michael Moore style documentary (laughs) or you make a Morgan Spurlock style documentary. And luckily this like leans more towards the Michael Moore and is so charming and enchanting. And Chris Rock like knows exactly where to put himself in the movie and when to like step away and not make it about him yeah and also like just um, calling upon all these like beautiful black women um actresses rappers like nia long is in this documentary and i'm like where has she been i love her so much yeah. she is so good and deserves more justice for nia long um n- not gonna spoil it here craziest fucking salt and pepper story mm-hmm. ever he talks to so he talks to maya angelou hello yeah about weaves and her hair about weaves it's so good (laughs) 2010 brings death at a funeral which is a remake of a 2007 british film directed by frank oz this version is directed by neil labute it's a majorly black cast that's the big change from the british film um written by the same guy that wrote the the first one dean craig and yeah, it's it's an ensemble. It's like I forgot how many people were in this fucking movie. Um, Regina Hall, Martin Lawrence, Danny Glover, Peter Dinklage. Um, I didn't revisit this, but in like the recesses of my mind, I have seen this. Like I know I've seen this. Yeah. Um, it's it's fine. It's funny. I like I rewatched it and was like, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but I was like. I remember liking the British one better. And then I looked back at my ratings and I was like, nope, I rated them exactly the same. <laughs> so good um, job. You made the movie again. In 2012, um, he does Julie Delpy's sequel to Two Days in Paris, um, Two Days in New York. He plays her love interest in that film. 
I really liked his performance in this movie because it was so subdued. It was so not the Chris Rock that we're used to. And I think it was more... I think it's, like, closer to, you know, you have to understand 2012. He had just done uh, The Motherfucker in the Hat on Broadway and everything. I think it was more of what he wanted to be doing. You know, like you said, it, it, it wasn't, like him going back to the same well over and over again, you know, and it's an adult comedy. It's not a perfect film, but I think it's rather lovely for what it is. And I think he's really good in it. Yeah. I think it's definitely um, a maturation. And honestly, like um, two years prior, he had just done Grown Ups, where he'd done kind of like, I want to say a sim- similar, right. like a, a father, um, you know, middle age um, in Grown Ups, like, even though it is a comedy, like it doesn't feel like bits on bits on bits. Um, especially for him, um, I had never seen Grown Ups, and I was like, you know what? This is fine. This is fine. Look, maybe I do take you for granted, and I'm sorry. How's about I take you out every Thursday night for date night? You know, Thursday's Grey's Anatomy, but any other night would be beautiful. Madagascar 3 in 2012, uh, Grown Ups 2 in 2013. Um, 2014, he directs and writes Top 5. Um, this is sort of him, uh, as much as we don't want to bring up Woody Allen's name, working in a Woody Allen mo- mode. Um, it's him spending one day in New York as he's being interviewed, basically sort of playing himself yeah. um, as he's being interviewed by uh, Rosario Dawson, who's a journalist. Um, and it's sort of just a day in his life at, during this crazy press circuit that he's doing for he's trying to this- launch himself as a serious actor. Yeah, and at the same time, his fiance that he's engaged to is a Bravo reality star and is planning to have their wedding on on Bravo, and he has to deal with that as well as this burgeoning romance with this young reporter. Um, and then, you know, after that, it's not, like, it's not a ton of big roles. No. You get the week of, which he does with Adam Sandler as part of Adam Sandler's Netflix deal. Horrifying. Yeah, just the fucking worst. He's in Dolomite Is My Name. It's not a huge role, but I highly recommend. We, yeah, we love Dolomite. Everybody knows we, yeah, we both love that movie. Um, he provides the narrator voice for the uh, mouse in the remake of Roald Dahl's The Witches, which came out last year for HBO Max. And really the the last like big starring role, big movie starring role he has is in the new Saw movie, Spiral from the Book of Saw. He's an executive producer on this film. Essentially, he <laughs> ran into the head of Lionsgate at a wedding and he told him how he wanted to do a horror movie. Um, and he's a big Saw fan and he pitched them on this idea. And his, his concept was what if Saw had had jokes not a lot of jokes but just some jokes um i saw this you did i don't know where those jokes are oh, yeah that's I, the real murder mystery um, man. where are those jokes <laughs> but maybe we'll talk about it and i'll fast forward in 1996 he married uh malak compton rock she's the founder and executive director of styleworks a non-profit full-service hair salon that provides free services for women leaving welfare and entering the workforce um they lived in Alpine, New Jersey with their two daughters, Lola Simone and Zahar Savannah. In 2014, Rock filed for divorce from Compton Rock. Um, at the time, Rock had admitted to infidelity in the marriage as well as struggling with a pornography addiction. Um, the divorce was finalized in 2016. Chris Rock, being a black man, has, of course, experienced racism 
many times in his life um, in a 2013 episode of Comedians in Cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. They are fully pulled over by a policeman. Yeah. Chris Rock tells you know Jerry Seinfeld that like if you weren't here I'd be scared like I'm famous but I'm still black in 2015 Rock was also pulled over three times in the first three months of the year each time Rock posted a selfie of the incident without further comment isn't that fucking wild I mean like he he put out uh, a couple of Netflix specials earlier this year and he talks pretty frankly about um, you know the social justice movement he talks pretty frankly about his divorce uh, his his flaws. His he's pretty brutally honest, and I think there's moments where the audience doesn't know what to do. They're like, "What are you doing, Chris?" <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's it's he says straight up. He's like, "There have been multiple times like people, like policemen, they don't recognize him or they don't, you know, like they just think he's just some black guy." And and he's like, "I don't." I, I think he very much he never wants to be like, "Do you know who I am?" I mean, he's like, "I am Chris Rock. I have." such a huge mega career and even me as a very successful black man i'm getting shit from you know uh authority figures here's the thing i know it's hard being a cop i know it's hard i know that shit's dangerous i know it is okay but some jobs can't have bad apples okay some jobs everybody gotta be good like pilots you know, American Airlines can't be like, you know, most of our pilots like to land. <laughs> we just got a few bad apples that like to crash in the mountains. Please bear with us. I think he, he also like just clearly, clearly loves his kids so much. Um, yeah. He talks a lot about them. I, 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 I watched Tambourine um, and I thought it was really good. I think he's still fucking got it. That being said, you know, I think that sort of wraps up Chris Rock's career as it currently stands. So why don't we move from his personal life and into our picks? And, you know, why don't we start with our one-star reviews? Okay. I'll go first, just because I have kind of a hot take. Um, and maybe this is unfair, but... I don't care. It's my show. I get to do whatever I want, Daddy. Um, <laughs> you know, we talked a lot about, like, you know, watching movies, not feeling great about many of them. Um, and maybe this is me, like, dogpiling and being an asshole, but I have, like, a real problem with top five. I just... One, I have a bias as a journalist already, like going into this movie. Yeah. So I understand that I get that, but I think, you know, Chris Rock in some of his movies, I think he's searching for, you know, he's trying to like reach out into the culture, reach out into Hollywood and like stake his claim and be like, hello, I'm here. And like, notice me, recognize me. Um, and, and work his demons out. Top five to me is that, in the worst way because <laughs> I just really can't stand celebrities complaining about their success and lack of more success. Um, even watching the trailer for this movie, it's like, so 
just to give some context, he plays a character um, named Andre Allen. He's an, a recovering alcoholic. He's a comedian, best known for playing um, Hammy the Bear in these like buddy cop movies where he's literally in a bear costume. I think him and Eddie Murphy have talked before about like how the only way they can make money, a black man can make money in Hollywood is by being the voice of an animal. They both famously have been voices of animals in movies. Um, and in the, in this movie, in this universe, Andre Allen, he wants uh, to become a serious actor. And so he's launching a, um, a movie about the Haitian revolution where these black um uh, historical figures massacred a bunch of white people um and turns out the movie is tracking to be a big flop like it is the day of the release and it is not going well um and he has to meet this journalist played by rosario dawson who's going to interview him um he also has a huge chip in his shoulder because someone from the times um has said really nasty mean things about his work and he takes it really personally um, so that's basically it. He falls in love with her or whatever. Maybe not falls in love. I don't know. He falls for her. They have a romance. Turns out she's the one who under a pseudonym has been writing mad, bad things about him. Um, it's, and the movie is not without its charms, but like, I just cannot get behind like, oh, you made $600 million playing Hammy the Bear and you're sad because like you have made the art you want to make. No, mama. No. Especially, <laughs> I mean, this is in 2014. I just don't know. And, and I don't know. Like there are so many artists who are making independent features, self-finance. Fe- are you telling me Chris Rock doesn't have the money to make the horror movie he wants to make the independent drama he wants right. to make? I don't, I don't understand that. And it feels like, and I remember watching this back in the day and thinking a lot more positive things about it now, right now in our current life and like the issues that we're all facing to listen to Chris Rock complain about how, you know, he only makes money because he's a fucking bear in a costume. And I, there are some like nuggets of things in here that I think are worth exploring. The idea of like, why don't you drink anymore? And he says, I'm only funny when I drink like that stuff is interesting to me, but it's hard also on top of that, like the whole idea like that a journalist will always fucking end up fucking the subject is so like, I'm done. I'm over with it. I'm also over these fucking artists who can't handle with like critiques from like that is their job. Their job is to judge your art. It's like, and, and what you do with that is, is your business, you know, like you don't even have to fucking pay attention for, if you're making $600 million making these movies, like who fucking cares? You know, like that's right. your own shit to work out. So in the past year, I've started reviewing young adult novels for um, Book Page magazine. And there have been a couple times when an author will write back to me and say, like, I really enjoyed engaging with your critique and your review. If you're not ready for, like, criticism and commentary, like, you're not ready to put the art out, you know? And what about, like, you don't even have to agree with it, you know? Taking it in. Right. Taking what you want from that and being like, oh, how is this going to inform what I'm going to do next? How, where is this person at that they're seeing my art in this way? And then moving on. Right. Like there is a way to engage with critique and criticism and not have to like make an entire movie about how sad you are because people don't take you seriously. And it's so funny too, because I, I, I think one of the frustrating things I also had doing this episode was Chris Rock is oftentimes one of those people that's like, oh, well, you can't say anything more. There's the the, the new Saw movie. Oh, his first scene is like a rant about how you can't say anything. There's all these words you can't say anymore. And 
But the funny thing is, it's like he was never really that problematic. No. I, I, it's it's always strikes me so odd. As the people that complain about it are not the offenders. You know, that was like when we did the Parker Posey episode, and Parker Posey very much feels the same way. Of like, you know, they think it's some sort of thought censorship, and it's like, no, it's just we're asking you to work harder. And stop complaining about that. Right. Like, stop. I, think there's a di- um, I think there's like a, a fine line between, you know, he talks with Gail about like, he's not going to dig up 30 year old messages or like, you know, and ha- being able to make mistakes and like learn and change. I think there is a difference between that and then also like a complete disregard for like the shit that comes out of your mouth. Like, you know, um, yeah. And, and I think those are two separate things. I also do have to say like, I think this movie has maybe some of the worst homophobia of his canon. The whole joke of Rosario Dawson's boyfriend, like, fine that he's fucking a friend that's a man. Right. But then, like, into this extended bit where her boyfriend wanted to be anally penetrated often and only. And she, like, shoves a tampon covered in hot sauce up his ass. Um, and that's a joke, I guess. Oh, come on, he's not gonna break up over that. Why not? Cause, cause what, what's he supposed to tell people? Yeah, we broke up cause my girlfriend shoved a red hot chili pepper up my ass. Yeah. No, 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 he's, he's gonna wait to do something like, like cheat on you or, or hit you, you know, like a nice respectable breakup. Hit me. I'm not. Hit, hit me. You. Something respectable like cheat on me or hit me. So basically what you're saying is that you're taking his side. I'm not taking awesome. his side. I mean, <laughs> Clearly you are. On. I mean, come on. Come you're saying on. it's my fault. I can't believe you didn't see this shit. I mean, he was wrong. He was wrong, but he wasn't burning ass wrong. It's so muddy and unclear. And I feel bad because even today he says like, oh, I'm, I'm writing things more in the vein of top five. And I'm like, well, I hope you've like learned, changed, grown. Yeah. I get what you're trying to say here, but it's just so misguided and so misplaced. Any of the like good of it is just like feels like such a waste to me i i do want to say uh, so i saw it in the theater and hated it and i rewatched it for this and i liked it a bit better because i do think i do think he has a certain authorial voice that is missing from a lot of his other work even the work that he's written and i do kind of like him in a more serious vein but i completely understand everything you're saying this is certainly not my five-star review by any means but um I will also say that this is also like Rosario Dawson's character, I think only works because it's Rosario Dawson playing it. I think she brings real life because without her, this is also kind of a, a misogynistic male fantasy. She's this like, she's a manic pixie dream. Girl. Mm-hmm. She's this like journalist who's struggling so much that she's a single mother and lives with her mom yet somehow is able to spend her entire day away from her house and spend money constantly and and it's you know she she has this whole like there's this cinderella complex thing where they they mention where you know you leave a article of clothing and it's just she's not a real person there's never once in the movie where she feels real except for the bit of depth that Rosario Dawson is able to find in her. I would. And so I also found that, you know, I obviously also picked up on the homophobia, but also I was just like, man, you know, please get a woman to write your women or like find a woman co-write. Right. I, I think like it's, it's kind of bizarre in the sense that like, um, Gabrielle Union, his fiance, almost feels like the more real character than Rosario Dawson. Yeah. Because at least with 
Gabrielle Union, he's able, he gives her a moment to be like, I know this is fake, but this is my reality that I'm creating. And, and you, and that, that's like the one part of the movie that I do enjoy because it's kind of her calling him out for his shit. Like, fuck you for like wanting to be a quote, like artist. Like, I don't have talent. I, this is what I'm doing to survive. And you're being an asshole. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I wish they would have dived deeper into that because it just kind of really feels like this folly of Chris Rock being like, me, oh no. It's like, ugh, enough. <laughs> uh, um, so top five isn't my one star review, even though we, we talked about it quite a bit extensively. My one star review was actually another one of his directorial efforts, which is I Think I Love My Wife. Oh, okay, um, yes. I... I hated this movie. I hated this movie from moment A to moment Z. And it's funny, I just recently listened to Frank Oz on Mike Birbiglia's podcast, and he said Chris Rock had come to him and asked him to direct it. And he got the idea very early on that the studio was not interested in... They wanted it to be like a quote-unquote Chris Rock comedy. And everybody had ideas, and they wanted their ideas to impress their boss, and that's it. And Chris Rock was more interested in making this sort of like deeper, more thoughtful, you know, it's a remake of a French film. Like, it's not... Right. And I think he fucked himself over by <laughs> directing it as well, because he probably had to really cave to a lot of the con like a lot of the the notes and a lot of the things that were coming from the studio as well um it was distributed by fox searchlight pictures um it's a film uh we talked about it a little bit earlier but it's a film about a business a businessman he's a banker um he's in this sort of sexless marriage with gina torres um he has a kid he reconnects with this uh high school friend of his nikki um, played by Kerry Washington, Nikki True, who is this awful sort name. of like awful name. Yeah, she's this chaotic force. She's not a person. She's a force, um, and she's like constantly getting him into capers and situations and trying to seduce yeah. him, sort of, but also basically just using him to do her bidding. But and, also, like he um, insists in this movie that like women are just like on the planet to ruin men's lives by yes. existing like he's like walking around and being like look at this woman she's so hot what's wrong with her and it's like sir i all i could think of was like is this the hell that straight men live in like truly they cannot just like be like they're being assaulted by the image of women just existing yeah it's just a trashy film it's got weird moments of like um sort of heightened comedy mm -hmm. um so much so that like I don't want to spoil the ending of the movie, but literally the end of the film is him and his wife singing this really weird auto-tuned soul song to each I other about, about why they don't fuck anymore. And it's in it, it like I've never experienced such secondhand embarrassment. I was like watching it and being like, Oh, Gina Torres. Oh, Chris rock. They really got you to do this. Didn't yeah. they? Look, I know none of this is easy. But I miss us. I miss what we had. I miss it to the core, and I just need to know... How come we don't fuck anymore? You the one on strike. It's been a mighty long time. You out of your fucking mind. Baby, I still want you. And I've wanted you for so long. But every time I touch you, you ask... 
Also, like I said, I'm pulling the pin out, him in the elevator, like, singing, like, some rap song, and the white people are like, oh, oh yeah, I made up rap. Th- well, this, mo- this movie was also um, co-written by Louis C.K. I'm going to assume the rap song, which contained multiple N-words in it, was written single-handedly by Louis C.K. because it's one of his favorite words. I just words, don't understand, so. like, the fascination by some people of, like, look at this inherent comedy of, like, or the inherent comedy of people of a different race being like made uncomfortable by someone else of a different race. Like it, to me, it's so like cheap and hacky and it's like, am I supposed to laugh that like this, this black messenger is singing a rap song in front of white people and they're guffawing. Like it's just not, it's not funny, babe. But, but, but wait, they revisit the joke yeah. later, and it's a white guy singing the song. And I was like, oh, is this your uh-huh. deep commentary that, like, black people inform culture? I don't, like, what? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that is a really bad movie. I like that we both picked movies that he um, had a hand in actually directing. Um, I don't think he's a bad director. I genuinely don't. I, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I think it's the Adam Sandler effect, though, honestly. It. It just, yeah, it just sort of is what it is. Is is there anything else that you saw that you didn't particularly like? Um, I really didn't like Nurse Betty. I mentioned that already. Um, I Pootie Tang is not for me in any sense of the word. Um, <laughs> blessings to those who it is for. Uh, it's it's a very specific cult oh, <laughs> that that movie is for. For a long time before I, I saw um, uh, Top 5, I thought the week of was going to be my one star review, uh, but that's a yeah. that is a a, a two for situation where the powers of Adam Sandler and Chris Rock come together to make the most fucking exhausting movie I've ever seen, and it's and it's two hours. Why is that movie two hours? Like and just like the the just out to upset everybody yeah. like like handicap do you like handicap jokes do you like sexist jokes yeah. do you like it's just like okay racist jokes here we go we got them all it's like just checking every box um the other one i would add to all of that um is uh bad company which is just the lamest action movie i've ever seen it is very and, lame but I, I by the end of it i was like this is satire now this is officially satire <laughs> it's almost like i was like oh 2002 yeah this is about right like it, it sounds like a gillette commercial um it's it's very 9-11 influenced very yeah. super super that but i think we've been negative enough um i know some people have definitely come here to hear more positive things so why don't we move into our five star reviews and talk a little bit about what we do like that chris rock has done there is no like five star movie let's just be very frank it, there's yeah there is no you know perfect chris rock thing and i want that to come for him. And I think he's on his way. Um, but what I enjoyed the most and what I think showcases him to his highest talent, um, writing, performing, um, being that voice for the community. Um, you got to go back to 1993 CP4. I think I, I, I really, really was surprised and, and loved CB4. I'm not a, a hardcore rap person. Um, 
but uh, yeah. I know earlier I made a joke about how you're not white, but that's the whitest I, thing I, ever. I'm not a hardcore rap person. Can you believe? Um, <laughs> but I think th- this movie is funny. Like I said earlier, it's it's loving. Like it's sending up the genre, but it's in a loving way. You can tell. Like I mean, this was the height of. Um, Straight Outta Compton and, and Wu-Tang Clan and all that stuff was like really popping off and he decided like to immediately like kind of like take it down a peg and I think that's so important because I think a, lo- a lot of especially white Americans were like oh my god these black men all they do is murder and kill and, and right. p- torture police and it's like no they're regular human beings actually there's so many scenes where the movie's just like fuck MC Hammer. Yeah, oh my god! <laughs> and like, it's so, but and it's like the same thing. What's ha- like MC Hammer was making money, like he was doing like the right. pants, um, and uh, like this movie just made me smile. Like a lot of the references, um, I, I the, the movie is about um, this uh, group of friends. They are kind of like nerdy black kids not terribly cool don't have a lot of money not a lot of like swag they have a band and and they've been trying to like find the thing that's going to hit um they kind of have a run-in with an actual like i don't want to say gangster but like he's kind of like a bad dude um in their uh california town called low cash um and they uh, the 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 quote bad guys go to prison and uh Chris Rock decides, what if we take on their personas and become like a rap uh, group? And his nerdy friends are like, no, like that's they're never going to work. We're not cool enough. Um, and he convinces them to do it. And, and he's also bringing in all these other elements. Like one of his other friends is being really um, guided by like this African spiritual guide who, you know, tells him what to say, reconnecting with his African roots. Um, and it's just kind of like the comedy of them going through their motions. They have a song called Straight Outta Low Cash. Um, and, and, and the songs are ridiculous and funny. Um, pretending and, and doing this performative, like, hard rapper thing. Um, we talked about, you know, there's a funny, like, sex scene. Uh, and there, it, I, I just think this movie, like, fires on all cylinders. I think it's him interrogating the culture. I think it's him being part of the culture. Um, and it's really just, like, to me, like such a gem. I, I don't. I'd never heard of this movie before, um, but I, I really. I mean, God, Halle Berry's in this movie. Um, Ice Cube, Ice T, Flavor Flav, Shaq, um, all make like these fun cameos, and I just love the idea of like the pinnacle of black stardom in the '90s coming together to make this movie for this kid who had just you know come off of a crazy run on SNL. Like to me, that just like. I, lo- I love that idea. <laughs> now, let me ask you guys a couple of questions. Do you cuss on your records? Yeah. Do you defile women with your lyrics? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, fumble your genitalia on stage? Yeah. Whenever possible. Mm. Do you, uh, glorify violence or advocate the use of, uh, guns as a way of solving civil disputes? Yeah. Okay, okay, final question. Do you guys respect anything at all? Not, Not a goddamn thing. You got to do it. Yeah. He's interrogating the culture, but also, like, kind of pointing it back to, like, the people, because there is, like, a senator-type character who wants to, like, 
Bam. Phil Hartman, fucking Phil yeah, Hartman, yeah. being so funny. Band their music and stuff like that. It it's it's very funny, and um, I'm glad I saw that it, it was really successful. Um, I can't. I mean, to me, I think it should be more in the like the cultural awareness. Um, I've read so often about you know these days of rap and music and like the parental advisory stickers and whatever, but this movie never comes up. And I think it's uh, such a lovely touchstone. He's, he's so, so funny, but he's also very sweet. He's not doing like the normal thing he does in his later stuff. Um, I think this is more silly. Also, I got I just wanted to mention um, the movie was directed by Tamara Davis, who uh, a female filmmaker who, you know, for, which feels like very um, revelatory for the time, like not early nineties, yeah. uh, a filmmaker, oh, a female filmmaker, like, you don't see that a lot still. So my five star review is you're going to think I'm completely insane because I was also considering CB4. Um, but I think, I think honestly my favorite performance in a movie, and I think it's because he really got to be himself is good hair. Um, I had so much fun Excellent watching choice. good hair. Yes, yes, yes. Um, as we mentioned before, good hair um, from 2009 is a documentary that is, it's about black hair a lot of it has to do with black hair shows the Bronner brothers and you know very famous hair show and, and the like kind of craziness of it it uses that as a framing device but also uh really what it's doing is it's basically talking about um the history of black hair from um, the natural hair movement um to chemical relaxers that have been used to straighten hair. There's lots of celebrity interviews that are all conducted by Chris Rock himself. Um, Ice-T, Nia Long, Paul Mooney, T-Pain, Raven Simone, Maya Angelou, as you mentioned before. Not Raven Simone. Washington. <laughs> yeah, Raven Simone. I love when he's like, so are you going to start a hair company like Jessica Simpson? Uh, and she said, and she's maybe. Like, yeah, she's like, if I find a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like, I just need that. I need that, um, that source hair. um you know and and speaking of it you know traces a lot of things back to to indian hair indonesia and like different um places where people think buying the better hair from and there's a great very michael moore scene where he jokingly tries to sell a a wig store like quote unquote black hair yeah would you like to buy some black hair yeah we have uh, i have all sorts of black hair here some of this hair is from Cleveland and uh, Cincinnati. This hair is from Detroit. Well, you might want to take it back. I just really think he's so charismatic and so interesting. And I like the idea that he's presenting to you something, you know, in, in a way that this movie could just be a two hour stand up. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's very informative. It's very funny. It's very light. But it's about a very serious subject. And, and I know it doesn't sound serious, but hair... Uh, especially for black people is often considered a status symbol because white people, Mm -hmm. because it relates a lot to the way people are seen and white supremacy. And I know that's an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people, but it's very true. Um, That's why there's these dangerous, insane chemicals for straightening hair and and why for a long time, a lot of black people thought that the only way that they, especially black women, thought that they would succeed was having these very white, straight, long hair styles. Yeah. Um, It's... It's... It's a... No, it's... 
I love this movie. Um, and you get him at his best. He is being himself, but he's being so funny, but he's being informed. Like now that we're talking about this, like he's kind of like a John Oliver type, you know, like he's able to like take your hand. He's giving you a personal message here. Cause he's talking about his daughters were the one he says, said, daddy, why don't I have good hair? And according to him, that's how he went on this journey of investigating what is good hair. Um, but also he has so much like institutional knowledge um, of able to tap all these people in Hollywood to talk about hair. I mean, he literally is asking Nia Long, like, what's that on your head? How much did it cost? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you got a, rel- a relaxer or perm? Um, and you can tell some of these women are kind of like shook a little bit. Like, oh my God, we're talking about like, is really it's a private thing and also yeah. talking to like these normal people like in the Bronx and Harlem and Brooklyn and they're like oh yeah I paid $2000 for my hair and that's each month and like so he go he yeah. goes through like societal economic you know fashion um even like I, I would say like the moral and ethical like questions around like you know the the women who give up their hair in India because it's like they're giving it to God and like it's such a vanity thing um, because it would have been really easy. The movie like starts going in this direction of like a lot of the business of black hair goes to Asian people. You know, like all the Korean companies and Chinese companies are the ones who make the money and they own all these companies. Um, it would have been really easy to end it right. there and how like. Black people are being pushed out of black hair. But he's like, but the reality, this isn't their hair in the first place. And this actually goes even beyond that. So I I was just very impressed that he was, like, willing to, like, dive really deep and tell, like, a really full narrative um, about the subject. And honestly, like, I would love just to see him do more of this, you know? Like, a series. Me, too. Me, absolutely, too. Like, HBO Max needs to give him, like, okay, we want six episodes of you, <laughs> like, just doing documentary-style filmmaking of whatever topics you're into. I want Chris Rock to yeah. explain to me what a Bitcoin and NFTs are. Was there anything else that you saw that you particularly like? I think Head of State is... I, I appreciate Head of State. I think it, like, really... You know, in a post 9-11 type of way, he is still insistent on, like, pushing, um, you know, this very specific black art on America. And I think it's it was gutsy. Um, it's funny. Um, it, it, it is gonzo theater, like I said earlier. Um, I don't know a movie like it's funny. The um, A.O. Scott just wrote for The New York Times about like the seven movies that have shaped American politics and head of state was on it. <laughs> um, oh, wow. And I, I super random, like I, it was in this Sunday's paper and he talks about just how for a movie that is so radical and claims to be so radical, it just really isn't, you know? Um, and I think <laughs> that it does a really good work of like, you know, imagine a politician who listens to people, a politician who like is uh, more concerned with like, how do you, how does someone get to work? You know, like the the really like right. minute details of your life. So I, I liked Head of State a lot. Um, what else? What else? What about you, Gavin? I'm good. Ah! <laughs> wow, Gavin, so hateful. I like him. I'm a I like him in Two Days in New York. I didn't really like. Oh yes, yeah, no, no. I agree. I like Two Days in New York. I yeah. like Two Days in New York. I think the movie's a little like wishy washy for me. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know what? I will also put, like, go out on a limb. 
I think um, Grown Ups is a very decent movie. I I was very I didn't watch it for Selma Hayek. I um was, was just like no, and I watched. I was like, you know what? I get being older, wanting to be nostalgic, going to, to like, and honestly, like for a movie that basically is just all these kind of like funny guys to come to be- together and like tell each other sick burns on each other. <laughs> like I. I appreciate the movie a lot more than I thought it would. Do I think it's great? No. But it's, if I'm going to have to watch an Adam Sandler vehicle, like, I'd rather watch this than anything he's put on on Netflix in the past whatever fucking many years. All right. Before we get into our fast forward, let's do our mixed reviews review. So my one star review was 2007's I Think I Love My Wife. My one star review was 2014's Top 5. My five-star review was 2009's Good Hair. My five-star review was 1993's CB4. All right, let's get fast-forwarding. Before we look too far into the future, we forgot to mention that uh, Chris took a very uh, spirited turn in uh, Fargo in 2020. Yes. He talked a lot about just like how much he was so happy to be there. And, like, really sink into the role. Um, I think in that same uh, interview with Gail, he talks about how he feels like he's finally, like, a really good enough actor to do stuff like this now. That was a part I probably... Not only was I not a good enough actor maybe 10, 15 years ago, I didn't have the gravitas. I haven't lived a life. You know what I mean? But now, you know, I've lived a life. And... I can use those things in, you know, in my acting. I can, mm-hmm. I can use actual pain. I can use actual loss. I would like more serious. So I just, yeah, I just want to be in good stuff. You know, I got, hey, comedy's great. Comedy's been good to me. In that New York Times interview, he says, this is the greatest role I've ever had. He says, I hope it's not the greatest role I'll ever have. <laughs> um, you know, and hopefully if there's more like that in the future... Um, I watched two episodes of Fargo. I watched the entire season. Um, I don't think it's a show for me. Oh. Um, I mean, and maybe just like this season. I don't know. I know there's a lot, like every season is different. Um, I just feel like, I don't know, like whatever. Who's the guy who does this shit? Noah Hawley. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think he's like really into himself and his own filmmaking. And I'm like, yeah, enough. Like no, it's... I, I could definitely see that. I mean, the 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 Fargo shows are also like each season is also like really rife with a lot of very specific references to Coen Brothers movies, and and so mm. like that can get really indulgent at points too. But I I this wasn't my favorite season of Fargo, um, but I, I liked it. I liked it well enough, and I thought Chris Rock was actually very good in it. Um, and plus, it, you know, it's just a great, amazing cast all around, and everybody just yeah. really firing on all cylinders. We supposed to get rich and stay rich? How? By saying our prayers. The boy went to the club and the bulls lit him up. You act like that can't happen just walking down the street. Acting like I'm the villain. When all I do is fight for this family. You don't like how it's going? You scared to take the risk? Too bad. We're on the ride now. And we can't get off till the roller coaster stops. 
Now take off your damn coat and get me some fucking coffee. I really enjoyed it and think he particularly did a lot of things that I've never seen him do um, more so than he's certainly doing in Spiral from the Book of Saw. Um, as I mentioned before, so Spiral Book of Saw just came out. It's out this weekend. It's, you know, movies, they're coming back out again. So you might see us doing some, um, yes. you know, overlap with things that are coming out, which is why we're doing Chris Rock. Um, I, I saw it. It's, um, I don't know. It's just another fucking Saw movie. I'm sorry. I didn't see anything new, anything interesting in it. Um, I thought, again, yeah, try something new. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Is it less gory? It, I, I heard it. I heard no. it's less torture porny. No, still a no, lot torture porny. That porn? was the thing. Is I'd heard that too, and I was just like, "When is this less? Why is this less? Like, what? Is, like, <laughs> do I have to watch a man get his fingers ripped off? That's still gore. Like, I don't want to watch that. Like, yeah. Um, and that's maybe th- gore is coming back. I don't know. And that's the thing is, I'm a I'm a big horror movie fan, but I'm never in it for the gore. And so, like the Saw movies which I've seen all of for some reason are not for me. They're not, you know, it's not my cup of tea. I'm not interested. I thought this one might be slightly more interesting. Um, I do think it's really pretty fucking weird that Samuel L. Jackson plays his father. Um, That's fucking weird. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson, who's maybe 10, 15 years older than him. Yeah. Maybe. Um, Don't look that up, but he's 56. (laughs) How old could Samuel L. Jackson possibly be? Yeah. Um, I thought that was a weird take and I, and I, I totally see why Chris Rock would want to do something like this and, and just sort of reinvent, try and reinvent what he's doing. But I don't think the ninth movie in a franchise is, is the, is the space to do it. And yeah, he might be, a fa- I mean, he might be a fan of these movies and maybe he did make the ultimate like fan move by, but like no one is more grateful than a sagging franchise to actually get a star like Chris Rock to put themselves into it. Right. I mean, like, he got to be the lead, which he hasn't right. been in a long time. But again, I, I I truly have no idea what the, like, economics of being a fucking Hollywood megastar is. I just don't know why he's not doing his own shit outside of the Hollywood system. Right. And studios. Because I think he has the means. Yeah. But, like, he's almost insisting, he's like, no, I will make a movie only with studios. <laughs> I mean, his the next thing that he's attached to is Canterbury Glass, which is the new film written and directed by David O. Russell. David O. Russell is Oscar catnip. So, like, that's, you yeah. know, it's clearly a good thing and a direction. And, you know, David O. Russell, I think outside of flirting with disaster, doesn't really make broad comedies either so i think this is a he's chris rock is getting to work between fargo and saw and this he's getting to work in an area that he's wanted to work in um but uh, you know this to me this makes sense canterbury glass makes much more sense than spiral and once again it's not that i don't think chris rock shouldn't be doing a horror movie i think he should be doing an original horror movie i don't think he should Mm. be trying to prop up a dead franchise you know yeah, I mean, it feels like he's just trying to, like, shake out the cobwebs. And, you know, he has said, they're like, how did you spend quarantine, the pandemic? And he's like, I'm writing a lot and acting a lot. And I think he, I think especially this, this divorce um, and kind of, like, coming to terms with his demons is making him kind of look inward and be like, okay, bitch, like, it's time to really, like, buckle up. And, like, at the very least, I'm... 
better. He makes Spiral than like Grown Ups Three. Yeah, I would say. Um, even and 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 the best part of this is, and the reason maybe why I'm so like down on top five is because you can be like a serious actor and be funny. Who would have thought? Like. <laughs> No one is taking away Chris Rock's funny award or like funny bone or, you know, any of the success he's had as a comedian just because he is trying to be a serious actor, you know? And I think he's finally realizing that and he's realizing that he has these powers that can be used at all times. Um, And so I'm excited about that, you know? And for what's next, you know, it seems like a little bit of a mystery, but at the very least, I'm like, yeah, do fucking weird shit, you know? I just be weird. I completely agree. My only, literally, my only two things. Um, I will say one. Get a better caliber, friends, man. Oh, don't, don't. You're not. You're you're not wrong. You're very not wrong. Don't hang out with Louis C.K. You know he said top five was inspired by Kevin Smith's marriage because he's good friends with Kevin Smith. Don't hang out with Kevin Smith anymore. Stop. Stop hanging around with those guys. Two. Get. Get. A, a woman co-writer the next time you direct something make sure it's co-written by a woman that's that's all i yeah. ask because i do think he's a talented director i don't think the flaws of you know top five or i think i love my wife or head of state are in the directing i think it's in the writing and so please <laughs> just hire hire a woman at least it's like uh, hire a woman to look through your script. I don't know. <laughs> I need I need the Issa Rae Chris Rock experience. Yeah, okay, yeah, like absolutely. that's what I need. Like it needs to be sharpened. Um, and and I it's almost as if like Chris Rock never found like the um, the person that is going to harness his energy. You know, like and really put it into fucking overdrive. Kind of like I said, like the Adam Sandler of it all. Like when Adam Sandler is given free reign, it's just like fucking horrible, like a yeah. nightmare. You know, it needs to be reined in. He needs an editor, an editor for the thoughts, yeah. an editor for these ideas, an editor for his amazing talent. Um, because I do think he is an amazing talent. Like, you know, he's able to, God, if there is a way that he could harness the energy of um, uh, a communication and, and his voice and, and those performances and turn it into, you know, uh, a really great, uh, like, acting role like that I, I can only imagine you know like he'd be unstoppable it'd be over for us hoes okay uh, and and i and i hope it one day is over for us hoes yeah i genuinely hope it ends too um uh, <laughs> much, much like we're coming to the end of this episode uh so i think that wraps up chris rock but yeah i mean i think you like you said who knows what's coming surprise us yeah yeah he, i think he has so much goodwill also like no one is like, oh, that Chris Rock is right. so unfunny. Don't no, want to see yeah. him. It's like, <laughs> yeah. please. And I and I honestly think like everybody likes working with him too. I truly just don't get why someone who has had so much control over his career just isn't like, okay, I'm gonna fucking do my own shit and fuck the studios, fuck HBO. I don't need to do that shit anymore. I know you have the means. Like surprise us, make the small dirty movie, do the thing, just yeah. do the thing absolutely um so that wraps up chris rock if you want to find us online you can always find us on twitter at at the mixed reviews from facebook just type in the mixed reviews you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com also on instagram just type the underscore mixed underscore reviews 
And if you want to listen to us, as you have been doing this entire episode, we are on a plethora of podcast apps. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, Google. You know what? Look it up. Find it. Yeah. We're there. We're there, baby. Like and like and subscribe. Absolutely. Babes. Like and subscribe. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please stop by and leave us a five-star rating and write us a little review. We will read it on the show. All that stuff helps us, gets us in the algorithm. You know, we recently entered the film history charts on oh. Apple Podcasts. And that has been like a real joy to me to see. So yeah, please write us something nice and we'll read it here. Are we in the top five? No. no hard no Uh, but yeah thank you guys so much we'll see you in a couple of weeks Uh, we hope you join us Uh, get back stay safe and um, have a little fun too why not get ready for that hot girl summer we know we are oh yeah bye 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 if you've been dating a man for four months and you haven't met any of his friends you are not his girlfriend Some of the things I've said may not apply to you. Some of the things I've said may offend you. But no matter who you are, you must remember this one thing. No matter what a stripper says, there's no sex in the champagne room. None. No sex in the champagne. No sex in the champagne. No sex in the champagne.